Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene. We're back after a bit of a break, uh, but with a special guest. Um, I am here with Julie Zerbo. She is the... She's a lawyer specializing in fashion, and she's the founder and editor of The Fashion Law, which is a publication about fashion primary law, but I think also a bit of business and consumer culture. And that Julie is one of the brightest minds that I know, and always a pleasure to speak with her. So welcome, Julie. Thank you. What a nice introduction. My pleasure. So usually I start out these things when I talk, uh, especially to people like you who is independent um, about your journey first. How did you get into law? And um, besides your parent, your Jewish parents telling you that you have to be a lawyer, um, how, how did you decide to get into law? And how did you decide to specialize in fashion and how did you decide to launch um, the fashion law? Mm -hmm. um, I actually have Austrian and Italian American parents um, that didn't necessarily oh. push. Yeah. Who didn't necessarily <laughs> push me um, into law, but I, I just think I naturally kind of gravitated to it based on the way that my mind works, which is super analytical. Um, you know, I, I started out studying economics when I was in my undergraduate education and, and ended up thinking that maybe I would go to law school, um, not because I wanted to end up in fashion um, by any means. I, I was really interested in in human rights. And it was that interest that really kind of led me to fashion because of the extent of human rights issues when it comes to uh, global supply chains. But on that journey, I realized um, that there was another very interesting element to, to be uh, explored, and that was intellectual property, kind of the branding and, and the assets of fashion brands, uh, of retail companies. And when I was in my first year of law school, I, I identified that that was an area of interest to me, but I also identified that there was a massive void um, of resources for people that were interested in that. And so I, I started researching and writing um, after school because they didn't have fashion law classes um, in Washington, D.C. in law school when I went to law school um, 10 years ago. And so I, I started really self-educating and writing about it and eventually started a, a little blog because I thought maybe other students would be interested in it. Um, and that kind of just got me to more or less where I am today. I kept up the site when I was working, when I was um, studying for the bar exam and taking the bar exam and doing all of that stuff. Um, but eventually it became really obvious to me that I didn't want to be a lawyer in the most traditional sense and that 
um, I really wanted to try to build the, this informational resource, this news resource, um, because that that void for expert analysis and expert reporting and, and, and consistent reporting of the legal issues um, for the retail and apparel industry still is 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 pretty pretty obvious. That's it in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so it wasn't like you loved shopping and you decided since I'm doing law, I might as well do fashion law. No, and I still don't <laughs> love shopping. It's so hard. I, I hate it. Um, it's really difficult for me. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you and one of the reasons why I like your publication is because it shows a completely different side of fashion. And as we, you know very well, uh, fashion is just loves hiding be behind this uh, luxurious slash creative facade and views itself as this, uh, um, you know, glamorous industry. And I think what a lot of people miss is that there is a business side of that. And of course, there is a law side of that, meaning there is a practical side of that and not just the aesthetic side. And I think it's important for people to see that side. Also for young designers, just to know what they're getting into. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something you also have thought about and wanted to explore? Yeah, I mean, when I first started writing about law and fashion, I was not familiar with the industry at all. Um, as I mentioned, my background is in economics. Like I wasn't, fashion wasn't on my radar. I didn't know the inner workings of this industry. I knew how big it was and I knew what it looked like to outsiders, uh, which I was. And I think to a very large extent, uh, I still am, even though I run a publication that focuses um, on fashion and on luxury and, and things in the periphery. Um, I didn't, I, I went into this and I think in many ways had, um, I was kind of fortunate to discover it kind of, um, uh, naturally and with curiosity. Mm -hmm. And so I got to see what it really was um, that that makes up this industry. I, I didn't have this baseline knowledge. Um, and, and what I've learned over the past, I think it's closer to 11 years now, um, is so interesting to me still to this day, you know, what it takes to build a luxury brand and what they're actually selling and is that even remotely what they're telling consumers that they're selling right mm -hmm. they're selling images they're selling trademarks these are businesses yes yeah. there there are beautiful runway shows there are um you know interesting ad campaigns and all of these things but i think that those things are thoroughly secondary to the business particularly uh, as, and I'm sure that we'll get into this, but it seems that business trumps everything else, particularly 
at this time and in this climate of, of consolidation and, and conglomerates and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, for sure. We will get into it. Uh, why do you think there is such a void, such a disconnect between fashion and law? Uh, and of course, there are lawyers who specialize in fashion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but why do you think there is this gap? Uh, it would seem kind of on some level like, yeah, you need like a publication like yours would have always been needed. Um, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't there until you found it. Why do you think there's such a gap? Is it is it like because people from these industries are so far apart, they're not even like thinking about each other? Or is it some kind of American pragmatism that's like... Because another thing I wanted to ask you is, um, well, I'll, I'll ask you after um, okay. why you think. Yeah. Um, so I do think that it's important um, for designers to have this information for lawyers um, to be kept up to date because fashion is such an important industry when it comes right down to it due to the size, due to the scope, um, due to the importance of the legal issues. But I think that for a really long time, maybe it wasn't considered important and that the legal mm. issues weren't considered to be amongst the most pressing. Um, and I think to some extent that that's reasonable, but at the same time, we're talking about, you know, tens of billions of dollars uh, in revenue for, for groups. Um, we're talking about human rights issues. These are important yeah. issues. Um, also, I think that the fashion industry doesn't like a lot of this, a lot of the issues that I cover aren't particularly convenient or ones that brands <laughs> really want to talk about. So yeah. I can understand why people before me weren't running out to write about uh, the legal issues um, of companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, my next question was, do you think this is a more american phenomenon because something i've been thinking about lately is that if you look at france or italy or the uk um mm -hmm. fashion is important for them mm -hmm. not both on the sort of industry level but also on the cultural level they mm -hmm. understand the importance of fashion as an industry whereas i feel like in the states I'm thinking mostly of like government politicians, like no American politician, I think, would ever mention fashion in like any speech or or feel like I feel like it's so like off the radar in the States, whereas somewhere, in, you know, whereas in Europe, whether because it's a tradition or because it is indeed like a bigger um, industry you know, in terms of percentages of the GDP than mm -hmm. here? Like, wh why do you think that is? I think that the, I mean, it's a few things, right? I think that the United States is at a, we're just at a different point because we're decades and decades and decades behind, right? Mm -hmm. Like our country's just not old enough. Uh, to be able to compare neatly to why is our approach to 
laws when it comes to fashion and and apparel the same as France, for instance, um, which has the oldest design houses in the world. Um, so I think that there's that element for a really long time when the United States was first starting out making its name in fashion, it was a lot of licensing. We weren't mm -hmm. really putting out original things that people were super interested in trying to amass rights in and protect. Mm -hmm. um, we were essentially serving as licensees of French brands that were making new interesting fashion yeah. pieces and we were so also pirates that. right let's not yeah, forget we, we were yeah. you know as much as we in the states vehemently defend uh, copyright laws we were pirates when it came to fashion for the longest oh, time yeah yeah i i agree completely um my, i was just being polite and saying we were <laughs> we were essentially licensing um and then also i just i mean it seems that the United States is behind in, in many ways, and I'll keep this limited in scope, <laughs> this comment, but we're behind it in many ways when we're looking at uh, regulations when it comes to fashion. You know, France is light years ahead of us in terms of addressing um, excess unsold textiles and things like that. Like, it's just not... It, I think it's starting to uh, be on the radar of, of legislators and regulators in the United States, but even now, it, it's we're, we're still so behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember when I, I don't, you probably remember this too, but it was a while ago actually when. There was a big brouhaha in New York because we're the center of the fashion industry that uh, Chuck Schumer will bring a bill about counterfeits or some copyright bill. I think it maybe have been the copyright bill. And it's like it didn't even go to a vote on the Senate floor. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. That's the United States political climate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when when I was in law school, I worked um, with a lobbyist um, who was working on behalf of trying to uh, pass legislation to provide specific protection for garments because they're so difficult to protect as a whole um, under copyright law that never went anywhere. And it was the third iteration of, of that bill. So it's just not it, it's not on the um, congressional list of priorities. And yeah. I understand that to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain to our listeners, because I mean, I know this topic fairly well. I used to actually do a class on it at Parsons way back when, but can you explain how the, U the EU law treats uh, design trademark and how American law treats or does not treat Know, design tra trademark? Um, I would argue actually that trademarks, I, it, it's, the treatment is more or less the same. Trademark rights are pretty robust in the United States, in the EU, in the UK. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I, 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 um, let me rephrase that. Yeah, it's copywriting a design of a garment as opposed mm -hmm. to a, a brand, a trademark brand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in the United States, I mean, generally it's it's 
difficult to protect. And I think it should be difficult to protect a utilitarian thing. Like it's just good policy to not let a single entity claim a monopoly over um, the design of a dress. Um, in the United States, what is allowed um, is the protection of creative elements that appear on um, a, a utilitarian thing such as a dress. Um, I think there's a bit more um, expansiveness to the law in the EU and the UK. Uh, they have a community design right, for instance, which provides more protection. Um, but I, I think that in the United States, designers have done a good job at kind of, no pun intended, but fashioning uh, protections or, or benefiting from the protections that we do have, which is why, um, you know, there are so many trademarks out there. Branding is so, uh, it, it's so bold. It, it's so obvious. That's mm -hmm. partially a response to the fact that they can't protect uh, the vast majority of their design garments, the, the, the way that things look. Um, mm -hmm. And instead of relying on on their brand names, that's yeah. in, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I totally agree with you. I don't think garment design should be protected. Otherwise, I think we'll live in a much poor uh, aesthetic universe uh, if mm -hmm. people are not allowed to take inspiration from others. Uh, and I yeah, know yeah, I I agree completely, and I think that there. Are, you know, that that importance kind of got lost um, in, in our culture of like calling things out to some extent, like fashion is inherently in the business of recycling existing designs. We can't have innovation. Um, and this is actually every industry, whether we're talking about automotive designs, if we're talking about pharmaceuticals, like you can't have innovation if you can't rely on what's already come before. You know, in, in big pharma, that's because it's too expensive to do new R&D, you know, that starts back at square one. In fashion, it's just like how many different ways can you really make a pair of pants? Yeah, exactly. And I know there are 100 designers now sh sharpening their knives coming for us, but <laughs> it's a hard it's a hard thing to get across someone and I understand when someone complains that they got knocked off, but it really is true like because they're not thinking, well, no one's complaining about you, but they could have and the bigger the company, mm -hmm. like the more uh firepower they have to bring someone to court so i do think it's better to have maybe sort of a system of um i don't know well i'm not really into court of public opinion but i understand when like a young designer gets knocked off by a big brand but at the same time no one's everyone should also be thinking the other way around what would happen yeah and i'm not saying that you know, carte blanche, people should be going out just replicating others' designs. I just, I mean, my approach and, and my approach to writing and, and research generally is pretty no nonsense, you know, which is why you're not going to find articles in the fashion 
law being like, what if this, what if that? It's like, why don't we deal in the reality that we're in um, and, and find solutions or find, find ways to operate? Um, and that's what I like to, that, that's kind of the space that I, I like and I like to provide information about, you know, okay, so we're not going to reinvent the wheel of copyright law, but, you know, you can rely on trade dress, which refers to the appearance, uh, if it's source indicating of a product or, or, you know, if you have a product that you think is going to be longstanding, maybe design patents or something to consider, um, mm -hmm. you know, that to me makes more sense than, you know, complaining yeah. that we don't have enough copyright protection. Yeah. Yeah, but you really got me thinking, and I've never thought about it this way, but like logomania as copyright protection. <laughs> I've never I've never thought about it this way, but I it mean, makes total sense. Yeah, like it, it it's really it's more difficult to legally copy something and no, it, it's difficult to accurately copy something and legally copy something if it is covered in branding. Like it's hard to copy Louboutin shoes without having a red sole, you know, and that, that's not copyright protection, that's trademark protection. Right. Um, the reason Louis Vuitton started putting a print, uh, their, their monogram print on trunks was so that if people wanted to copy it accurately, they'd be they would be um, engaging in trademark infringement. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that that, that's just one example of how intertwined fashion design and fashion as an industry is with these underlying legal uh, issues and theories and doctrines. And I mean, it's what keeps me busy every day. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So now I understand why everything at Burberry is now covered in the Burberry check. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can copyright, you know, it doesn't have to be a logo, right? You can trademark like um, a, recogni a recognizable pattern, right? Such as a Burberry check or such as a yes. La, La Boutin red uh, soles. There's something that's recognizable and repeatable, but it doesn't have to be a logo per se, right? Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, that's That's smart. It would have been hilarious if Margiela ever trademarked the four stitches that you were supposed to like remove. From <laughs> Honestly, they might. They might. They have a good legal team. I mean, maybe at this there. point, they but might. certainly not at the moment. I think they actually might. Yeah. Oh no, my god. No. Yeah. If, if you can <laughs> research that and get back to me, because that would be the ultimate in fashion irony. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Of, of a designer who wanted to be completely anonymous and you were supposed to remove the four stitches and it became a logo without a logo and if that now is trademarked that would be just a brilliant exercise in irony unintended of course yeah yeah <laughs> i i'd be willing to bet i'd be willing to bet yeah all right uh well let's let's get back to we got off uh track as we are uh want to do on on the on the podcast um but let's go back to the fashion law and uh you know tell uh, tell the our audience more a bit more about the publication how it works mm -hmm. what you concentrate on 
um, and so on, so they can follow you? Yeah, so basically I started writing largely about intellectual property, trademarks, copyrights, stuff like that, but it since really evolved because there are such diverse legal issues in fashion. So it really, we really look at everything from, you know, what we were talking about Burberry. So what Burberry is doing in terms of trademarks and, and their brands. And it goes into what brand trends we're seeing generally. An article that we did a few years ago that still gets a massive amount of traffic is what blanding is and, and why mm -hmm. brands are adopting um, kind of paired back versions uh, of their branding. But then also we really talk about business stuff too. We, we talk about why, why certain M&A deals are happening, what M&A deals are happening, um, and then also cover the sustainability and supply chain issues. We talk about um, tech, which has been very, very interesting from, you know, Web3 to now AI. Um, so it really is, you know, I've contemplated rebranding um, <laughs> my own site for a while now because it really isn't just fashion law. You mm -hmm. know, that that's what it started as, but now it really is. Um, kind of a very evolving, very dynamic look at not just fashion, but retail and luxury more broadly. Um, we just wrote an article the other day about Rolls Royce, you know, mm -hmm. so it, it really spans um, industries in many cases um, to provide a really holistic look of, of consumer culture, really and looking at it from a business perspective and looking at it from a legal perspective as opposed, and, and really, frankly, from an outsider perspective, as opposed to approaching it from, you know, within brands or, or with from fashion shows or things like that, you know, that, that I think is what sets the site apart other than the subject matter, which is, Mm -hmm. Really, you know, if there aren't other publications that have lawyers writing about legal issues in fashion. Um, but what also really sets us apart is that we, you know, this site is owned by me. Yeah. Uh, the people that, that write for my site um, are experts in whatever it is that they're writing about, whether it's law, whether it's economics, um, whether it's mergers and acquisitions. Um also, we don't have any advertising uh, and we don't have, you know, industry investors. And so it that kind of all really sets us apart from the status quo that is uh, media and, and publishing and fashion for the most part. Yeah. So your outlet is not mediated. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, so it's, it's not like not. yeah, and, it's not like you're in contact with PR teams all day long or anything like that, right? You really, you really no. seem to be apart from that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I reach out for comment when I write. You know, if Sheehan is being sued for the millionth time, I I reach out and ask <laughs> for a comment because while I don't actually consider myself a journalist in many ways. 
Um, I do still try to abide by certain journalistic ethics, um, such as, you know, reaching out for a comment. But it's interesting, I think, the way that the site has evolved over time and actually has become, I think, even more distinguished or, or, or separate from the industry. And, and it's kind of evolved in who we're writing for. I, I was telling you before, while we do certainly have readers that are interested in, in topical fashion industry news, which we do provide, um, our readers from students to in-house counsel at brands to CEOs to board members are, are really sophisticated and are demanding this high level analysis and insight, um, which we've been able to provide. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you, you preempted my next question, is, which was, who is your audience? But it's, <laughs> it sounds like uh, you just... Yeah, uh, I mean, but... I will say one mm -hmm. other thing, and it's that while, <laughs> while we do have a serious information arm, and when I say information, I mean legal and business information, we're providing... Um, in-depth case analysis and trend analysis for lawyers, I think that it, it's still in many cases accessible um, because mm -hmm. my goal was never to write for other lawyers, believe right. it or not. You know, there's in, in, in a traditional legal education, the, the materials that you're presented with um, are just so boring. Uh, and I just wanted to do it a different way. I wanted to educate and inform a broader audience. And so it really has enabled um, the fashion law to speak to high school students, college students, mm -hmm. uh, business school students, uh, all the way to, like I said, CEOs and board members. Um, and so that that's something I, I never want to be kind of lost in the fray. Like this is actually a readable public publication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And in my experience, I can absolutely attest to that. <laughs> um, it is a very well written publication and very accessible and very intelligent. Um, what are the challenges of running an independent publication? What are the challenges that you're encountering? Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, no, I, I'm, I'm Take kidding. Take your there's, time. There's, I think there's the practical challenges of entrepreneurship that come into play, right? That I don't need to tell you. Like there's mm -hmm. literally running editorial and and also running a lot on the operation side at the same time. Um, you know, we're a really small team. And so it involves me doing a lot of different things as opposed to exclusively focusing on editorial. Um, luckily, we've built up um, a base of contributors. So that that helps a lot. Um, but the, there's the practical side of things. I think probably what's more interesting is the reality of running a, a publication that covers things that brands don't necessarily want covered. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, can be challenging. Um, I, knock on wood, have been really lucky in that I haven't 
faced too, too much pushback from brands um, in, in terms of my reporting. It probably helps that we don't take advertising. So mm-hmm. I'm never faced with what a lot of other publications are faced with, which is we a brand or advertiser coming to me and saying, I don't like this article. If you don't pull this article, we're going to pull our advertising. So that simplifies um, my experience um, pretty significantly. Um, I also really can more or less exist and operate without brand um, uh, cooperation. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I don't have to rely on keeping like I don't have to play nice with brands to ensure yeah. that I can still write the things I need to write, um, which, which is a big relief because I can't I can't imagine that even if I'm writing exactly what uh, is alleged in a lawsuit, brands still don't love having that out there in the world Uh for everyone to read. Um, Mm -hmm. So while that, while it does potentially make things difficult, the fear that, you know, someone's not going to like this article, it it could be a heck of a lot worse. Um, But just because of the way the site is situated and the way that we're monetized, which is exclusively uh, generating revenue through subscriptions, it, it kind of, uncomplicates things yeah yeah yeah. uh do you ever feel like do do you ever feel like not in danger but like someone's going to take like really be offended by what you wrote and like write you some like nasty season desist letter or anything like that or are you confident that you know in your reporting you are very I mean, you're obviously very impartial and analytical. Yeah, I think I used to be a bit more nervous because I would. I I, I think I used to write more opinion style pieces, uh, mm-hmm. which I think are the ones that usually piss brands off the most oddly, right? Like I feel yeah. like they get so angry about these opinion pieces. <laughs> now I, I now I. I am pretty confident based on our impartiality. I think brands know, brands councils know um, and respect the work that we're doing, mm-hmm. um, the research that goes into it, the thought that goes into it, the, the analysis. You know, it, it's we write two to three, sometimes one article per day. Um it, it, because it takes time. It takes time to do all of this research, to fact check, to to get comments where necessary. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, based on I'm not going to, you know, say who our subscribers <laughs> are, but, you know, based on on who they are, um, it seems that the, the site is a respected source of information. And mm-hmm. so kind of having that baseline of understanding that that brands and their councils um, respect the work that we're doing and trust the work that we're doing enough to pay for it every year, um, I think kind of makes it easier to operate. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
That's great to hear because I know how hard it is to run an independent um, publication, of course, and also incur the ire of um, uh, of brands. Yeah. Um, were there? Do you recall any particular standout pieces that you've done that have caused like a you know, I know that piece on blending, um, it kind of went viral because I saw it all over my Instagram for sure. And people were talking about it. Um, yeah. uh, did you get any pushback on that? Did, have you gotten, was there any other pieces that went, well, let's say that they were popular or made in or impactful or got, got a conversation going that you got mm -hmm. and that did you get any pushback or anything like that? Uh, let's see. I mean, I got some pushback like industry wise. I, I, a few years ago, I wrote an article about how pervasive it was for editors and other media figures to be going to brands like couture shows and their preseason shows, um, you know, whether it's Chanel in Cuba or I don't know, Dior in, where was it? Somewhere in the Middle East. And, and they're writing these glowing reviews about these collections while not telling the readers that, you know, the brand paid for me to fly here first class. The brand put me up in a hotel for the weekend. They paid for all my meals. They gave me gifts. And so I wrote an article on my site about how even very respected industry publications were doing this and not telling readers that this is, this is how these reviews came to be. And this is potentially some background information that you should know to, to gauge how you want to or gauge how much weight you want to give this review that, that got a lot of attention. Um, to the point that the New York Times reached out and said, will you actually write about this further? And, and will you write about this for the paper? Um, so I think that, that that was an interesting one. I wrote another one um, about how I, I, I questioned the extent to which brands luxury brands will be able to maintain the, the mystique of, of of their so-called waiting lists for bags and, and their bag quotas in light of the rise of the resale market and, and how that mm -hmm. changes the, the potential for demand and, and for brands to continue to raise prices and, and, and build this mystique. Um, and obviously some brands didn't love that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure. calling into question their entire model, um, mm -hmm. which in my view is, um, you know, relying largely on, on storytelling about heritage and about craftsmanship that probably no longer exists and mm -hmm. goes back to the early days of brands. Whereas now we're really in most cases dealing with, you know, air quote, luxury brands that are really in the market uh, of 
mass market fashion, expensive, but still quite mass if we look at the quantities of products being sold. And so it's those types of articles um, that don't Mm -hmm. generally get me um, any new friends, (laughs) Um, but they're the ones that I I find to be the most rewarding because they're the things that I didn't know when I first Mm -hmm. started thinking about fashion or luxury. You know, I didn't know that you had to jump through hoops and, and spend a bunch of money in order to potentially get a Birkin bag. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know that, you know, quote unquote luxury brands were selling billions of dollars worth of so-called exclusive bags every right. year. You Limited know, edition of 150,000. Yeah. <laughs> And like, actually, what we're really selling a lot of is belts and, you know, leather goods, keychains and whatnot, you know. So I think some of my favorite articles and the ones that have garnered a lot of traction um, are kind of debunking some of these these myths, these urban legends, these Mm -hmm. luxury urban legends that that we've been told by brands for so long. Yeah. 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 Um, Well, yeah, that industry does not like uh, for anyone to pull back the curtain, which I guess is, I mean, you do that on some level. And that's why Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why the fashion law is valuable, because it does that. And I do find it uh, curious that you get sort of negative feedback or pushback when you're basically uh writing about public information it's just information it's sort of like being uh i don't even know how what to compare it to but yeah it's just something like they have to put out but they don't really want anyone to see it um yeah you know it's like yeah, they also like like their earnings reports where they <laughs> really try to mask anything negative with and spin it in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's interesting the way that companies have changed. I don't know if change is the right way, is the right way of putting it, but lawsuits, for instance, complaints, you know, the first, that first filing and all of the filings with the exception of ones that are like sealed. Um, But the vast majority of legal filings are public information. Anyone can find them, but, Mm -hmm. you know, with the rise of, I guess, more reporting on legal issues, but also consumer interest, investor interest, analyst interest. I think brands and and their communications departments are are really weighing in many, many cases, you know, do we file this lawsuit? And if we do, one of the things that we need to think about is how the press is going to respond to this, you know, and it actually goes back even further. Like, do we send this cease and desist letter? Because if we mm-hmm. do, there's a chance that this that the recipient of that letter will leak it to the press and then what? Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that that's kind of an interesting thing that's come really kind of 
neatly hand in hand with the rise of social media. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah. anybody can take the cease and desist letter that X brand sent them and put it, put it on the internet and somehow that brand will be the bad guy, mm -hmm. yeah. whether they should be or not. Yeah, yeah. It's true. There is something, you know, as much as I personally don't like it, but there is something to be said about the court of public opinion and, uh, you know, shaming is not the right word, but really exposing uh, some of the bad behavior that, that goes on. Uh, and yeah. I, I, yeah, I do think there is something to it. I guess like any thing with social media there's positive and negative <laughs> um, yeah yeah and i feel like i i have kind of i feel like the fashion like used to do stuff like that we used to you know really try to to sh you know shine a light on on some of this call out culture stuff and whatnot but we've really pivoted since then because it's just I don't think it's the most valuable information that's out there. I think that there's something to be said about focusing on, you know, unfair or deceptive elements of the industry. But, yeah. you know, I just feel like that narrative is a little bit, mm -hmm. the, the cancel culture narrative is a bit, it's a bit, I don't know, Nasty. Dis distasteful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, no, and... I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I just, I personally, I think like things like Diet Prada do more disservice rather than service um, to, to the industry. But that's a topic for another conversation. <laughs> um, I want to uh, pivot to something we, we sort of talked about a little bit before and such a great topic to explore uh, about what we're seeing going on in fashion, how fashion has changed over the last couple of decades. And of course, on some level, there is only one story of, of fashion in the past three decades, and that's consolidation and mm -hmm. the building up of fashion conglomerates, uh, growth mm -hmm. at all costs and mm -hmm. stifling of competition. And I think ultimately impoverishment of fashion, but that's just me. And, um, <laughs> you know, I wanted to get uh, your take also as a lawyer uh, of like mm -hmm. what you think about the consolidation of the fashion industry that we've been witnessing. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably with the exception of ESG and sustainability, which actually is part of this, it's all interconnected. But I think that, that M&A and consolidation is one of the more fascinating aspects of fashion, you know, since the 1980s, but it seems to be particularly uh, at the forefront now. Um, you know, I've written so many pieces on how X group has gotten to where it is today, or X brand ended up, you know, under the umbrella of the conglomerate where it is today. Um, but I, what I think is really interesting is, is the wave of consolidation that started, what, in the 1980s, 90s, um, as a result of LVMH and, and caring 
Uh, and, you know, what the business mind in me, it, it makes sense. Like there are so many benefits um, to being under the, or being on the roster of a conglomerate um, in terms of margins, in terms of opportunities for attracting talent, for uh, advertising in the way that is necessary in our super crowded uh, market. I think that, you know, on paper, consolidation makes the most sense. LVMH is one of the biggest, most valuable companies in the entire world. Um, mm. You know, Bernard Arnault was not in the top 10 uh, richest people in the world for a very long time. He is now. Um, you know, this is good business. And, and when I say that, I mean that from like a bottom line perspective. Is this good business for our planet for for creativity <laughs> in our industry that's obviously another issue but i i don't i don't foresee it stopping anytime soon i don't see competition regulators stepping in anytime soon because while lvmh is huge caring is huge amazon is so much bigger walmart is bigger and mm -hmm. Am Amazon is is doing luxury to some extent too. I, I think that one day we'll all be buying our uh, you know Chanel bags on on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There was uh, I screenshotted. It's on my phone, so now it lives forever. But there I know was what like, it is. I know what you're about to say. Yeah, the the Gucci bag at Costco. At Costco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I used to really think like, no, there's no way that anyone is going to buy a Gucci bag or a Louis Vuitton bag or whatever on Amazon. Like they, and there's no way, there's just no way. But, you know, I'm not so convinced anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really not. If Amazon can sell us healthcare, you know, I keep getting emails <laughs> like come to our pop up clinic um, if they can sell us health care. Yeah, they can probably yeah. sell us luxury goods. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's the ultimate consolidation. Right. I just I think that mm. the FTC and the, the FTC might have an issue with that. The Federal Trade Commission, they might think that that's like an anti-competitive merger. If yeah. LVMH was going to merge with Amazon. But right. that, that that's obviously the most extreme example. But I don't know. I just my I, I wonder and we talked about this the other day. I, I, I wonder what the trajectory for smaller independently owned brands is um, if they one want to stay independent and two, if they want to build bigger businesses. Like I don't know how you compete with groups that reap or brands that reap the substantial benefits of being group owned. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I don't think that the industry is doing a very good job of nurturing um, 
any semblance uh, of independence for mm. brands. Yeah. Am I, you might disagree. No, I think you're absolutely right, uh, especially in the United States, uh, but also in, I think UK is the only, like London is like the only city that's doing a good job at nurturing talent and okay, it has its own issues, but it's doing that. So I think that's great. Uh, but I agree with you. It's so hard. Like, I mean, if you're not Olsen twins, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. very yeah. hard, hard to build a viable business that, you know, of any substance where you can put on a show in Paris twice a year. Um, you know, doesn't mean you have to do it, but that used to mm -hmm. be sort of the traditional route. Like, and at some mm -hmm. point you used to be able, you know, like it's not like Anza Mister or Walter and Byron had mm -hmm. a lot of money, but they were able to do that. And I just don't know how you do that now because these companies have, increased barrier to entry mm -hmm. by a lot like really substantially and so yeah i completely agree right. with you there and i am curious why also there isn't more scrutiny when it comes to that and my guess is France is not going to do it because it's their company. <laughs> like, 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 uh, France is very good at like blocking American mergers. Uh, but LVMH, oh, yeah, no, wonderful. Yeah, the more the better. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's super funny. But I think it's true. I, I have only thought about it now, like after our conversation on that topic before, and I thought, yeah, there there will be like very quick to block like a Microsoft and, um, and uh, whatever that video companies, yeah, or Google and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to their own companies, I don't. And I mean, if anyone, I think LVMH would be like a prime target. Uh, and I see these companies expanding in more insidious ways where I think they will be able to get away with new acquisitions because mm -hmm. like LVMH is now moving into hospitality, they're acquiring yeah. hotels, they're acquiring mm -hmm. stores, you know, there is mm -hmm. a, like, okay, they're, they're acquiring something that you know, like Tiffany, right? That's a jeweler. It's not clothing. It's not leather goods. There is a mm -hmm. rumor flying around mm -hmm. that maybe Neiman Marcus will spin off Brockdorf Goodman and LVMH mm -hmm. will be the buyer. Mm -hmm. uh, and whereas caring, and this is the most fascinating to me, I'm dying to get your take. <laughs> what do you think of Pino, not Arno, but Pino? buying um what's that creative artists agencies caa yeah, okay yeah. and it's not caring mm -hmm. right it's pino's artsy me i think or is it caring i don't think it's caring i th i think it's the artsy me which is uh, 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 -huh, uh, -huh. uh pino's finance the, 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 yeah, the holding company, company. Right? family yeah but you can only see how it makes sense if you zoom out, right? Because you buy a, such a huge talent agency and all of a sudden you got all these celebs 
in your mm -hmm. pocket and mm -hmm. this is a fashion celebrity industrial complex that we're all mm -hmm. living in and but it's like you know you can't really say that okay they're cons like that 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 is a monopolistic move but it's very shrewd move nonetheless right because they're expanding now the definition of what an industry is but the law is not looking at it that way right yeah i think i mean it, it makes me think of something bernardo no said i think it was back in the 90s or he said it reflecting back on what people told him early on and i guess he was told like you're crazy to try to put all of these companies under the same umbrella ranging from you know spirits to fashion brands and it's it's interesting to look back um and and see how that group in particular got to where it is today and and the benefits of the diversification of the group so so in some ways it really acts as a hedge uh on its on its operations and that if people aren't necessarily spending a ton of money on bags they're just not that interested they might still be spending on alcohol they might still be spending on trips, you know, they might be spending it duty free. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's particularly interesting. And I also think that it is interesting that they can continue to expand um, and, and build up their growth uh, of revenue and the size of the group without necessarily raising uh, red flags among regulators. Um, because certainly some portions uh, of their portfolio are, are not necessarily co it's not that they're not cohesive but you know hospitality you wouldn't say is exactly the same as right. fashion exactly and i um what i think is interesting about the caa rumor is that you know caring has been and, and i know that it it is artemis or artemy or whatever that is potentially doing is is considering that acquisition but caring's been really um overt in its focus exclusively on luxury right mm -hmm. because they they were very insistent on offloading non-luxury properties you know they had puma they had yeah. volcom they had like all of these other things and they were like making a point to shed those shed those properties from their portfolio and focus exclusively on luxury um, and, and so in, under that lens, it's the thought of, of CAA being so closely aligned is interesting. And it, it I think it takes on the meaning that, that you suggest, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it will be neatly aligned. Yeah. Because if you now have like direct line to Brad Pitt or whatever, you can just yeah. much easier to pick up the phone and say, hey, uh, maybe do you want to be in the next Gucci campaign? Uh, or what are you yeah. going to wear to the red carpet if we own the agency mm -hmm. that represents you? you mm -hmm. know, things like and it's also interesting because like what, what if I don't, I'm just thinking about Johnny Depp, for instance, because I know he's been like the longstanding face of, of a Dior fragrance. So mm -hmm. like, what if CAA has Brad Pitt, then does Karen get to say, hmm, maybe, maybe when that contract is up, 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you want to do uh, uh, Saint Laurent myself. I think it's the new one. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really great uh, name for a fragrance in 2023. <laughs> it's all about myself. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really, you know, it seems to me that, you know, with LVMH, you know, the, the operating word is luxury. And whether it's champagne or a five-star hotel or Louis Vuitton bag mm -hmm. or a champagne mm -hmm. you can serve at your five-star hotel and at the gift shop you can buy Louis Vuitton yeah. bag. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, it seems like luxury is the operating word. And of course, they have very luxury profit margins. I mean, their profit margins are the envy of the world, right? Yeah. Um, which is something people should pay more attention to because it shows you how much you're overpaying, actually. <laughs> I know. I know. Air has really good profit margins, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I am sure. Yeah, no, that's... I feel like that's never also the number that brands are are trumpeting out there in the heading of their of their press releases quarterly or annual. Oh no no no. Which no. is funny no. because like investors will care about that, but yeah. I wonder if I wonder if you know consumers are paying attention to stuff like that. No, of course they I don't. They don't know what a profit margin is. <laughs> um, yeah. But I just, I wonder if there will ever be a reckoning. You know, all it really takes is like a couple of TikTokers to like explain to everyone what a profit margin is and go viral. <laughs> and suddenly that will be a thing. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder like what the reckoning is. Um, not only because there's just information is so much more accessible, but the industry or, or regulators and watchdogs are, are forcing the industry to start thinking about and sort of talking about climate and ESG. Um, I, I just, I don't, I struggle with making sense of how that works in fashion uh, and even in luxury where it's a volume play in so many cases. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really, I think the best regulation that's come out recently is that forbidding of destroying stock because mm -hmm. that's just, there's something really vulgar about this behavior of artificially limiting stock which i totally understand mm -hmm. it's all done for image um because mm -hmm. you have to project mm -hmm. you know that we equate scarcity with luxury and so mm -hmm. this sort of artificial enforcement of scarcity by destroying um stock i'm really glad that at least the eu uh and did mm -hmm. we have the same in the united states did we Pass the same legislation. Not California is piloting um, a kind of extended producer responsibility um, initiative for that includes textiles, um, and, and there is a bill in the works, but it, it hasn't been implemented by any means. But as usual. 
the United States is far behind. But if California passes something that's pretty meaningful, given the the size of the economy um, and just like the sheer number of companies that do business there, I think that that really California is our best bet um, in, in seeing any movement in terms of, I mean, and for those that don't know, extended re- producer responsibility puts the impetus on companies that put products out there into the world to deal with them at the end of their life uh, or their life cycle. Um, so that includes coming up with ways to recycle them or, or you know, sustain, quote unquote, sustainably dispose of them um, and then paying into funds and things like that. Um, while this is kind of old news in, in the EU, this is something that they've been working on for a long time. It's it's somewhat novel in the United States, which is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I'm also watching with some excitement the moves the EU is making with regards to like standards for longevity and quality mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that's like your yeah. shit should not fall apart after two washes uh i'm very mm-hmm. i'm excited about that have you been following this one i have it's all kind of in a package more or less together i think that that one's interesting um i think it's interesting in a lot of ways because i think that that narrative of brands using just poor quality materials is more, I think it applies to more companies than just like the bottom of the barrel fast fashion brands. Like we ignore this whole middle of the market, which are not Mm -hmm. the Zara's that are not the Shein's. We just kind of shift responsibility. And by we, I mean, I guess, every other company that is not a fast fashion company um, it, it is shifting responsibility to this small group of fast fashion and ultra fast fashion companies. And it's just like, what about everybody else? And so yeah. I think it will be really interesting to see how, how new regulation can deal with just the sheer number of companies in the fashion and retail space that are just putting out so much stuff of varying qualities. You know, I'm not going to say that necessarily some high fashion brands quality is as high as it needs to be because it's drastically different still than it was a decade ago, two decades ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the you know, erosion. I think they're yeah. slipping too. One hundred percent. Oh, the erosion of quality is across the board. Like some, like some yeah. stuff I see that's coming out of the so-called luxury industry. I'm like, you, you have got to be joking. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but no, but if you think about it, that's very, very rarely mentioned when we're talking about quality Mm -hmm. of products being put out there. And I'm not here to like say, yes, go Shein or yes, like yes, Zara. But I think that we need to be realistic that some of these issues, whether we're talking about quality or we're talking about human rights in the supply chain are, are, more expansive than than initially meets the eye and, and 
what the media is talking about at any given time. Yeah. 100%. Fast fa- high fashion brands seem to like really escape that narrative mm-hmm. and in mm-hmm. most cases. Yeah. But also mid-market, like you pointed out. Mid-market yeah. is really like, we know like some of this like Polo, Tommy Hilfiger, all these enormous brands, like they are made in the same factories from the same fabrics. It's the same shed. It's just marketed differently. It's all about brand positioning and not about the garments exactly. itself. Oh, 100%. The markup that you're paying there is exclusively because the polo horse means something to consumers. And the only reason that is, is because Ralph Lauren has spent however many decades and however many billions of dollars, you know, sponsoring polo tournaments or, mm-hmm. you know, spending money to file trademark lawsuits and, you know, getting big celebrities to front their ad campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What other developments are you watching uh, with interest? I mean, while we're talking about ESG and and sustainability, that I'm really curious how brands are going to alter their supply chains to some extent as a result of geopolitical tensions um, and, and as a result of, you know, rising regulatory issues. Um, you know, it seems to me that we're seeing an uptick in uh, complaints filed um, and in regulatory probes over human rights abuses in supply chains. Uh, and, and that is something I'm watching really closely because if companies cannot um, neatly and easily export goods from China, they're in really big trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the biggest issues that we're seeing when it comes to obviously Myanmar is top of mind right now, but it, that seems to be shifting a lot. And, and that could drastically impact um, the way companies operate. I think right now I'm also very cognizant of the, the state of the economy because luxury depends so much on consumers feeling rich enough to, suppl- to, to you know, shell out on luxury goods. Um, and so I think particularly in the United States and in China, where consumers are not feeling particularly uh, secure about the state of the economy, it, it's interesting, um, especially because we are seeing slowdowns in, in both countries. Um, what else? I mean, I think that I know you think quiet luxury is not a thing, but I think <laughs> that, that that is... I think that that's interesting. I think that it's, I also don't, I've written multiple times that luxury brands were not worried about that, despite like the think pieces and whatnot. Luxury brands are not worried about that. A lot of people that are buying, you know, Louis Vuitton are not interested in buying quiet luxury Louis Vuitton. They're interested in buying um, things with logos on them. But I think that, for me, what's interesting is that yes, a lot of the a lot of the quiet luxury articles and and you know shout outs and whatnot that we've 
been seeing are, are the result of the trend of media, you know, oh, succession, quiet luxury, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow, quiet luxury. But I think what's interesting to me is what that says um, kind of about the, the state of our, our mindset culturally. And I think it's an indication of, of potentially some economic unrest. You know, people are not feeling super confident. Um, and so they're not really trying to be super loud and they're, they're not really trying necessarily to, to, I don't know, to shell out on, on logo covered goods. Maybe they're interested in things that have a bit more longevity. Um, I wish that that was true for a lot of people, because if we were, kind of buying stuff and keeping it and, and not living by trends, I think we'd be in a much better position, but I don't see that going away anytime soon. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. Um, cool. That's that. I agree. These are some of the most interesting things and I'm also paying attention to them. Uh, I'm also really interested in AI and, and privacy and tech. I think I don't know if, I don't know. Everyone was really obviously interested in Web3 and, and NFTs and all of that. And we, we see where that has gone, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, on that larger but, note, yeah, go ahead. Let's finish with AI. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think for me, the most interesting elements when it comes to AI are actually legal. Um, I think it's interesting to think about how my content, for instance, and your content is being used to, to train chat GPT and other models um, and, and what, what it means for media, what it means for, uh, I don't, what it means, I guess, for design, um, but also really what it means for the law. One of the things that I enjoy most um, in my work um, at the fashion law is being able to look at developing trends, whether it be in tech or, or otherwise. And, you know, kind of thinking and discussing what it means for the law, because the law is always, it's like the United States when it comes to, you know, regulation for fashion, it's always like 10 steps ahead. The law can never keep up with technology. And so there's always this, this, void. Uh, there, there's always this kind of need for clarity uh, when we have new technology and what it means for um, entities in various industries. And so that's kind of what is keeping me going at the moment um, in, in learning about and writing about and talking to, to brands about. Um, I'm curious what you make of generative AI though. Yeah. Uh... Well, yeah, like you said, besides a um, bunch of PR jobs being threatened. <laughs> um, uh, um, yeah, I am more like, I, I am more worried for them because I'm like, this is much easier to write a press release than a Eugene Rapkin article. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I'm not. Yeah, I'm like, I some days I'm like, I wish... I wish ChatGPT would come take my job, please. 
Sundays. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sundays. I, I don't give it a lot of thought, to be honest. Um, I What I have learned, especially with Web3, because that shit came and went like oh a gosh. flash in the pan. And mm-hmm. this was a phenomenal reminder that Jean Baudrillard was right about everything. That is <laughs> like simulacra and simulation. So I am actually purposefully mm-hmm. avoiding articles about AI. I'm like, I'm going to mm-hmm. see once it's settled down. And then I'll be able to address it properly. Right now, mm-hmm. there's so much speculation. And mm-hmm. and you know how it is with everything new. Who is first through the door is the grifters mm-hmm. and the opportunists, right? <laughs> like with, with every new turn, yeah. like the same with Web3, right? <laughs> I was looking at my LinkedIn the other day and there was be like AI specialist. And I was like, uh, you were a DJ two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm not joking. Um, oh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm seriously. Like, I thought you were. No, no, no. I'm so it's like, and I'm like, oh yeah, and it's and it's that set of people where uh, I'm like, yeah, you're a grifter, basically. You know, you are, uh, yeah. Um, and so, like, I'm like, okay, until I see this sort of uh, critical mass of it becoming a thing like then mm-hmm. we'll talk and that was mm-hmm. and that was my attitude with with web 3 i was like i just mm-hmm. don't see who the fuck is gonna go live in you know the central land and why are you paying millions of dollars for for uh, quote-unquote real estate it, it's it's nuts yeah and guess what Mr. Philip Pline, you were you're down a few million oh. dollars and now <laughs> your your plot oh. in the central land is worthless. And yeah. Obviously AI is not that and, and I do think AI is here to stay, but I'm I'm just taking a wait and see approach and mm-hmm. You know, just a lot of people are lucky that most people have short memories. But if we would go back mm-hmm. out and start digging mm-hmm. articles out about like, yeah, you were wrong about that. So I don't want to be in that position. And I also, I'm, let's face it, I'm not an expert. So, so for now, mm-hmm. I'm kind of avoiding it for the most, for the most part. Because also in my line of work, it's not like... Uh, you know, it, it, it's not something that I need to deal with right now. Um, so it's... Yeah. yeah. So that's my... Uh, yeah, no opinion. <laughs> but I was right on <laughs> Web3, I can tell you that. I was like, this I was like, this thing is a joke. NFTs are a joke. Blockchain mm-hmm. is great for like tracking yeah. provenance, tracking supply mm-hmm. chain, that's, authenticity. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously for your line of work for copyright, this is mm-hmm. that has enormous implications. But beyond mm-hmm. that, like I don't just like yeah. that. Anyway, that's yeah. my uninformed to two cents. <laughs> hmm. Well, I will tell you, I did search for the Margiela four stitches and they have a registration in the United States. <laughs> That's amazing. I hope, yes. Martin, you're yes. listening to this podcast. 
<laughs> yeah, for use on bags. Since they've had a registration since 2015, so they probably have it otherwhere, yeah. other other places, otherwhere. Of Gosh. course, wow. Yeah, <gasps> makes sense. See, this is Here why I go. love talking to you. This is this this is crazy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we've blabbed on. Um, no, we haven't. We've had an intelligent and wonderful discussion. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch upon that's, that I haven't asked? Hmm. Oh, I had one more question before I let you go. Uh, mm -hmm. Do mm -hmm. people ever come to you for legal advice? They're like, ah, oh, Julie, help. Yes. <laughs> they do. Yes. All the time. Yeah. Um, and... I usually tell them I'm not your lawyer. I can help you a little bit, but um, I actually don't practice in a traditional capacity anymore. One, because I don't have the time, but two, it would really complicate my my work on the site. Um, we're actually, I'm focusing much more on expanding the site, as you know, and, and building that business um, than actually, you know, billing clients and, and doing traditional legal work. Um, yeah, but no, people do all the time. And I get so many DMs, so right. many DMs. Yeah. Okay. yeah. This was my way of trying to discourage like a thousand students DMing you about copyright infringement. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, students should visit the fashion law. We have really good subscription rates for students because I actually feel super strongly about it being mm -hmm. a resource for students. They just don't, there's not enough consistent, accurate reporting on the law in fashion and retail out there. Um, so we make it really affordable for students to subscribe um, because it's important. Um, but yeah, I can't be your lawyer. <laughs> on that note uh <laughs> you want to shout out where people can find you on the internet on yes. social media yes it's it's just www.thefashionlaw.com and the fashion laws are handle um on every platform so it's pretty easy cool well julie this was excellent uh and now we got to the bottom of margella among uh, many other things. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and I hope we'll speak soon again. The pleasure is mine. Thank you for having Bye. me. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc. Intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening. <laughs>